Welcome to On the Edge of Equity, where every episode features crucial conversations centered on equity, diversity, and inclusion. But this isn't just talking the talk. It's about inspiring action, asking tough questions, and getting honest answers, because that's the only way that real change happens. Welcome again to another episode of On the Edge of Equity, powered by Athena Communications. I am your host, Tammy Belton Davis, founder and president of Athena Communications, and just delighted to have you back with us. In case you have missed an episode of On the Edge of Equity, or if you're looking to share a previous episode with a friend or colleague, you can find them on the Athena Communications website, Athena, A-T-H-E-N-A, Communications, L-L. LC.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And speaking of our website, we actually just redesigned and relaunched our website. So we're encouraging you to check it out today. And if you have any ideas for an episode, perhaps there was a conversation that struck you or there's a topic of interest, please don't hesitate to reach out to us and let us know what you're thinking. We welcome you and we welcome all of your ideas. I am so excited today to welcome my guest, someone that I've known for a little bit of time, but certainly has had a great impact in my life. It is the great Andres Gonzalez. Good afternoon. Welcome to On the Edge of Equity. Well, Miss Tammy, thank you so much for having me. Very kind of you and uh, know that uh, I reciprocate uh, the admiration here on my side. You've done great work, uh, much longer than I have because I'm a transplant to the area. So uh, yeah, so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to our discussion this afternoon. I am looking forward to it as well. And I want to make sure that I give you a proper introduction for maybe the few people around the planet who don't know who Andres Gonzalez is. I want to make sure that you know that he is the vice president and chief diversity officer at Freighter and the Medical College in Milwaukee, where he leads diversity and inclusion, strategic initiatives that include community engagement, diversity action teams, diversity and cultural competence, education, a host of things. Uh, he has been doing this work for a very long time. We were just chatting earlier about how he is recognized. Not only is Andreas one who is highly regarded within the healthcare industry, both as an expert and practitioner around diversity and inclusion issues, but certainly within the industries. I think of those uh, CDOs who have been doing this work. He is no stranger uh, to these conversations uh, and really what has been the catalyst for On the Edge of Equity. And so I'm really excited for us to get into this conversation today. So Andres, as I've shared with you, it's, it's really... Um, been my privilege and honor as I think about the work that Athena has been engaged in, but also where our circles definitely intersect. Mm -hmm. You have been such a catalyst for change for how you do this work within an organization. And I just want to lift that part of our intersection of circles was really our mutual love and connection to Milwaukee Rep. Even back then when I came 
came on in the capacity as the inaugural chief diversity officer for Milwaukee Rep. It was those early conversations that you and I were having about what this work would look like that truly, and I did not share this with you, but I'm going to share it now, that were really influential in why we even launched this podcast. Well, again, first of all, thank you so much. I'm blushing here. If, if I had the camera on, you would see that I was blushing because uh, I'm not used to that. And uh, it's not what I looked for, but appreciate the, the kind words. And uh, certainly, right, there's a personal why as well. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to get to it later. Yes. Which really, I think, has been uh, fuels the work that I do professionally as well. Right. And I think it's the same for you as well, Tammy. So, yeah, looking forward to that. And let's talk about that. Your professional journey has, you know, certainly taken you to a number of places. What do you see as similar? So you, as I understand in your background, Milwaukee, Cleveland, Western Massachusetts, what makes Milwaukee special and unique? (laughs) What is different? Talk a little bit about that journey. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a great question, number one. What I will say is, Tammy, and, and I don't know that, and you probably might know this, and, and maybe some of our listeners uh, who have experienced that type of journey where you've lived in different parts of, of the country, in regions, right? I think that there's oftentimes more similarities than there are differences. Mm. And what I mean by that is every time I, we have transition into a new community, the type of discussions that I start picking up along the way are extremely similar. Whether it's actually my neck of the woods, right, which is Cleveland, Ohio. That's where my mother actually uprooted us and took us originally to live. And we lived there for over 30 years. And then I expanded my wings, right, and went to, you know, Massachusetts, worked for another integrated health system. And now we're here in Milwaukee, in the Midwest again. I will tell you the same discussions around, you know, uh, food insecurity, Hmm. uh, lack of access, quality education, right, not being there, access to great employment opportunities have been the same discussions Mm -hmm. around, you know, around the table. And so I think that that's the perspective that I bring when I enter discussions here in Milwaukee, where I think for those of of us that have not lived elsewhere, Mm -hmm. right, you only know what you know. And so they think, right, terrible Milwaukee. And we always write, talk about, we always lead with negative uh, statistics about, you know, hey, we're one of the most segregated cities in America. And while that is all true, right, I'm not trying to sugarcoat the reality, I also look for the glass half full. And I'm like, well, yeah, but look at the renaissance that we're actually experiencing here, right? This is one of the few spots, quite frankly, in my perspective, outside of Chicago, where you will find where, you know, organizations are investing in the community, right? Mm. They're building or have built their new headquarters, right? Signifying and letting the community know that we're here and we're here to stay because Milwaukee, right? It's home. Yes. You look at how we leverage, you know, the lake we've had, right? We, you know, we had obviously one of the, you know, national conventions held here. Unfortunately, it was virtual, but nonetheless, right, our city was selected and now is being selected again, right, for the other party. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at the things and the assets that we have, I'm like, boy, you know, there's so much that Milwaukee potentially has to offer. Mm-hmm. And yet I, you know, I wonder how many of us understand, right, and are willing to come from that asset perspective versus deficit perspective, right? 
Absolutely. And I, I love that you've lifted the asset based narrative and the, the language that we use to talk about this city as someone who is a native Milwaukeean and very proud. There are oftentimes I take for granted at seasons, um, just what it means to be a part of this great community. And oftentimes the national narrative and it is a narrative that we have in many pockets adopted as uh, adopted ourselves um, is really to look at all of the challenges and to lift the deficits that exist, which is, you know, it is telling the truth. It is. There is something about the challenges that we have to address, but there's also this great opportunity to talk about what people are doing to make Milwaukee better. And you certainly are an example with the work that you were doing with Freighter and the medical college, not only around the equity space, but healthcare in general and how we're addressing the healthcare inequities that exist. Can you talk about from your perspective? Really what you see is sort of that biggest hurdle. What is the great challenge that Milwaukee is facing as it relates to equitable health care? Yeah, it's a, uh, again, another great question that you pose. And as I was actually kind of preparing here for the podcast, I had to think long and hard about that particular question. And I think for me, it really boils down. And again, right, I'm giving you my perspective, right, as a mm-hmm. transplant who has lived here now for seven years, but certainly have fell in love with Milwaukee. But I saw that to say that I think that the biggest issue that we have is really understanding how we can create greater collaboration mm. amongst ourselves. I think, right, I mean, I on a number of coalitions in the community, some of them that are very specific to healthcare, like the Milwaukee Healthcare Partnership, right? You have all of the healthcare systems sitting around the table. We also have our GEMS, our safety nets that we call the federally qualified health centers there sitting around the table as well. And oftentimes, while there's in spirit, right, we all come in with that collaborative spirit. Mm-hmm. I do know, right, because we feel it right at the community level that we're all doing great work, but in silo. That's right. And so I worry about, you know, our inability sometimes to certainly, you know, be willing to take that risk of, hey, you know, we're going to collaborate. I'm going to actually share with you my my playbook, because by sharing my playbook right at the end of the day, we're also right. We're ultimately the community wins. And that's what really matters. Mm -hmm. Not about any one of us getting ahead. But it's about our collectively, all of us, right, being on the same page and understanding what's our role, how can we create greater synergies and serve the community. So that's one uh, big hurdle that I think we continue to face. And then the other hurdle that I think we face is, I think at least from my vantage point, we tend to come oftentimes with a very prescriptive approach of what we think the community needs, right? We diagnose the community without engaging the community authentically, right? That's right. And so for me, that has been probably the greatest insight that I have learned along the way because I made Mm. those mistakes early on in my career. And so what I do is I tell our team and our system, let's, you know, show up with humility. Mm -hmm. Let's make sure that we show up with humility. And those of us that have also cultural proximity to those communities, right? Let's allow them, right, to to teach us, That's right. to instruct us, right? To model the way. So mm. then we actually are not making those full pause as we're coming and entering that space. And then it's about building trust and understanding what's the lived experience in the community. So again, we understand um, 
what is happening, what people are living through, and then we have a better insight, right? An understanding of what we might be able to actually offer. But ultimately, even if we know what it is, we should always, again, come back and say, hey, we want to engage you as a full partner, not as someone, right, that we want to diagnose, but no, as a full partner, as equals, so we can co-create the right solutions. And so to me, that's the other piece that I'm not sure that a, that we always get it right, hmm. but but I think we're getting better. But collectively, I continue to hear a lot of those rumblings in the community, mm-hmm. how we show up, right? Not even admitting to the historical, right, uh, systemic racism that our BIPOC communities have faced and what our own organizations, right, institutions have done to perpetuate that. And so I think, right, that's where we made those full pause and where we, a lot of the, the little trust perhaps that we have built, then erodes. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's it's those two fundamental issues that if we can get better about showing up authentically in the community and not diagnosing or or certainly using them as guinea pigs and i have heard that verbatim from both the african-american and the hispanic latino community sure. over the years and be coming in with an acknowledgement that we're going to partner not only with the community but with all of our other institutions as anchoring institutions then we probably stand a better chance to ultimately address these issues and really achieve that collective impact that we're looking for Indeed. And I, you know, you have lifted, I think, some powerful understandings around what this work in and through and with community should look like. And in our world, when we talk about community engagement, we really lift that we should be moving at the speed of trust. And that trust is relational. That trust is I am listening and hearing and I am together addressing these issues and that we're valuing the lived experiences of those that we're trying to serve, those that we are in community with. And I, I just I think it's such a powerful way to not only look at, you know, this bucket of what equity, diversity and inclusion is, but really honoring our collective humanity. (laughs) I mean, like, this is what every human wants is to be valued, to have a sense of belonging, to experience a value of of our own experiences. And so I just wanted to appreciate that lens in which you um, recognize that this work has to happen and your commitment as an organization and with your team, what that has looked like as well. Absolutely. And one more comment there, yeah. Tammy, and I know you and I have discussed this at least high level and, and I'm not going to get into my soapbox, but but again, not immune, right? Our region is not immune to this reality. One of the things that I learned early on in my tenure here at Freighter, as I was doing my roundings in the community, I quickly picked up that even within our BIPOC communities, right? Historically, we have been pinned one against the other. That's right. And so if we're going to be honest, right, there are issues fundamentally that are clearly similar mm-hmm. in the African-American Black community as it is in my own Hispanic Latino community. And yet, right, we have not been able to forge and build bridges between the two communities, right, to have honest discussions about what really you know, got in the way, right, originally, Absolutely. that we cannot talk with one another, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm always conscious of that because I know that when I show up in the community, People, right, are going to look at me and say, well, we know who he is. We know what his race or ethnicity might be. And I always wonder, what is their perception? Do Mm. they feel that because I'm part of the Latino community that I'm going to only serve my community and forget that I'm in this role to serve everyone? Yeah. And so that's something that I have wrestled with. And and so I'm very open and 
unapologetic about putting that out there in the universe and say, listen, here's the reality of it. Yes, I might be part of a community, but understand that I am building bridges. I'm also, I've been able to do my own work, right, in terms of my own cultural competence to understand some of the issues, right, and lived experiences of the African-American Black community. And so know that I'm an ally Mm. and I'm here to support and partner with you along the way. I could not agree with you more. I think that there's the conversation, the work behind how do we galvanize, but also ensure that communities of color who share the disparities, who share common challenges, how we can address that collectively within our individual communities, but also across communities, I think is an important conversation. You reminded me, Andres, when you were talking about both black and brown communities and what's the, what is the strategy of being very intentional with addressing these issues that directly impact both communities. And we can broaden that umbrella and talk about Asian and Native American and others who are a part of the challenges and inequities that exist within the systems. But a a few years back, um, right at the start, of COVID and moving into, you know, through this pandemic, but also part of quarantining, but at the very early stages of recognizing how COVID was moving globally, but how it was uh, disproportionately impacting both the Black community, Hispanic, Latino community in Milwaukee. And we had developed this campaign called You Matter MKE. And Mm -hmm. we, how this campaign really began was a number of black leaders had come together and said, you know, we've got to develop a campaign. We've got to galvanize people around these issues. We have to develop uh, some approach to getting resources and information out to our community in particular, to the black community in particular around both, you know, COVID uh, education, prevention, all of those things. And we had gone because we believed and we knew that a public campaign was necessary. And there were a number of groups that were doing sort of their individual campaigns, but there wasn't really a comprehensive campaign that was dedicated at that time. And this is like early May. And we started, you know, approaching some of the philanthropic organizations to say, help support this. And what we determined is that the issues were not just confined to the black community, that the Hispanic and Latino community was facing the same sort of challenges, access to healthcare, resistance, all of the things that have become barriers in both community. We were recognizing that now it had significantly impacted both communities and we needed to address it collaboratively. And so it was myself and Nancy Hernandez that came Mm -hmm. together to build this campaign that was targeted to our black and brown communities. And it was done in a way that said, we needed credible, trusted messengers from those respective communities to actually start to engage and help people to understand what was happening, help them to get access to those resources, recognizing that this was no, you know, we we didn't have time to say this was just an issue for the African-American or the black community, or this was just an issue for this, you know, geographical area. It was impacting both of our communities and that collaboration, that cooperation, that we did together was much more impactful than us going at it alone. 
That's right. Right. And then it's building to your point, Tammy, on those great experiences, right, that we are able to establish, right, where we are able to get to know one another, where we can deliver right on behalf of the community and say, let's not forget, right, that we were able to do that. That's a bright spot. Let's continue to build on that. So great point. And thanks for everything that you have done there, because that was actually absolutely instrumental in terms of addressing the COVID issues, right, and, and, and how it started impacting both of our communities um, severely. So Absolutely. And when I think about that campaign and the work that obviously you are in the healthcare industry, so these issues that we were tackling a couple years ago are still profoundly a part, I am certain, of conversations and work that you all are doing within your industry. Can you talk a little bit about how Freighter and the Medical College is really the work that you all are doing is about addressing the healthcare disparities. What talk a little bit about what that work has looked like and maybe even some highlights of where you've seen success. Yeah, it's a phenomenal question. I will tell you that our journey with health equity started in 2015. Mm. That's when we signed the one to three, the American Hospital Association's one to three for health equity, the pledge as many other healthcare systems took the same kind of call to action. And so for us, it was really critical that we needed to understand, right? It's not about the signing off on the pledge, but really what does that, let's unpack the pledge. Let's understand what we're signing onto here. And then B, let's make sure, right, that we stay the course and that we are accountable and also transparent about our journey and how we're either delivering or not on those efforts. And so for us, that was really catalytic because it actually came from Kathy Jacobson as our CEO. She was Mm -hmm. sitting actually at an American Hospital Association's board meeting, and she's actually emailing me in real time and saying, hey, Andres, I know that, you know, when I interviewed you, you talked about, you know, health equity work that you were actually leading at Bay State. Here I am right sitting. I know that we haven't done this. What are your thoughts? And Mm -hmm. so that was on a Friday afternoon, Monday morning, as Kathy would, you know, would, would have it. We're meeting, we're having the discussion. She signed the pledge. I was probably just a few months, um, you know, in my role. And that became, right, the shift catalytic for us as we built that new strategic plan to make sure that we were continuing to build on the great foundation, right, DNI foundation mm-hmm. that I inherited. And then my team, which is a superb team that I inherited, continued to keep those efforts moving. But we were now, this was our new frontier, right? We needed mm-hmm. to actually start getting really deep into you know, our clinical platform, how we were actually showing up in the community, the level of care that we're providing to the community, right? And allowing those quality metrics to tell the story. And so that's a lot of the work that we did foundationally. And so I am really privileged that um, I have had really great physician leaders Mm. as diet partners within our health uh, system, whether it was our enterprise-wide chief medical officer or actually our current VP of population health, who oversees our health equity efforts. His name is Dr. Mark Lotus. And Mark and I actually are joining the hip for this work. Hmm. So Mark, you know, and I are always, you know, conversing on, hey, you know, what's going on, right, with our key efforts, Okay, you know, that are underway. Are we, you know, are we meeting the mark? Are we exceeding the mark? Are we having setbacks? And if so, what's really, right, informing, you know, those discussions. 
And then that has become then really informative for us in terms of where we want to go next. So just to give you a prime example of what we're doing, mm -hmm. you know, we actually have three key metrics that we're driving currently. The first one, and this is actually a multi-year right strategy that we have had in place. First one is actually breast cancer screening for African-American women mm. specifically, because what we have found in working with our service lines, our cancer service line, is that by the time that African-American women come in and they get their mammography, oftentimes cancer already has spread, right? So mm. it's actually advanced and it's actually harder, right? So the chances of this individual now to actually beat cancer and be able to go back to you know her family and to the community are probably um, now at a higher stake, right? So she's actually now fighting a very different battle than if we would have actually you know, if we would have been able to catch cancer at an earlier stage. Hmm. And so that really led us to really work again, informed by the community, what can we do? And a number of community members through focus groups mm -hmm. that we conducted. So actually it was for not only the African-American women, but we're also targeting our Hispanic Latinas in the community. And so it was, you know, widely successful. We were able to actually have uh, over a hundred women that were actually, you know, get their mammographies. And then those actually that we found probably that needed to come back for a follow-up, right? Based on their results, now we're actually, right, we were able to engage with them. Hmm. And certainly now we're able to actually provide that level of care and specialty care, right, that it's needed based on their results. And so I saw that to say that, you know, this is really now building greater opportunities for us because, again, it's not just freighted trying to show up in the community by ourselves mm. is now partnering with key strategic partners sure. that again are trusted in the community that have been doing this type of work for a very long time you know you've alluded um or you've really talked about this co-creation how you address issues in partnership with community working collaboratively and in many ways allowing community members and those who are directly impacted by these disparities really help lead um, in terms of solutions and how do we actually connect and engage deeper hearing directly from those who have that lived experience about what it means to address some of these health challenges. I think, you know, I just want to echo how that approach to in partnership with versus mm -hmm. doing it to community as if as an right. institution, we somehow know uh, more than those who are living with these experiences. And that's one piece that I wanted to raise. The second that you've also talked about that I think is so very powerful is that representation matters. And so as you think yeah. about how this work, both you as an identified man of color who is in a role that has the opportunity to really break down systemic challenges, right. begin to let go of those barriers. Andres, you've been doing this work <laughs> before. You know, I feel like the bucket of equity, diversity and inclusion really became a thing after 2020 with the murder of George Floyd. I think unlike organizations like Freighter Medical College, even Milwaukee Rep, uh, who had been, you know, had made it a strategic priority to address these equity issues. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And you're right, right? I mean, I was thinking about that and I call it the alphabet soup, right? Every year we add one more letter to the work <laughs> that we're doing, whether it's belonging, whether it's right, allyship, whatever the case might be. And at the end of the day, right, I am less concerned about adding more letters. It's mm-hmm. about, you know, the core issues, right? And fundamentally, what's the commitment, right? What's the senior leadership buying and support that we're going to get to certainly continue to uh, build or amplify our strategy? And so, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think, you know, and I alluded to this in the beginning, you know, in the in my first remarks, I think it starts with my own personal why. And, you know, for me, Tammy, as it is for you, right, this is a personal thing, right? We, we don't in the morning, right, uh, put on an armor and say, we well, you know, let me put the armor on and I'm on, right, for the next eight hours and then right. I'm going to go home and take it off, right? We, we live this 24-7, mm-hmm. 365 days a year because this is inherent to whom we are, right? It's really core to us. It's important to us. It really matters to us. And for me, mm-hmm. probably one of the first watershed moments was when my mother actually uprooted the family you know, we we left Puerto Rico, which is my beloved homeland, tropical, beautiful island. And yes. of all places, we landed in Cleveland, Ohio, <laughs> um, with the second, you know, number of gray skies a year. One of the coldest winters that you can actually experience in the nation sure. happens there. But, you know, Cleveland really nurtured us, became home for us. And so I am indebted to mom for doing that, for really giving us right an opportunity to what she called right achieving the American dream. Hmm. And so I saw that to say that, you know, that opened my eyes because I remember coming from the island and coming to Cleveland and going into high school because I was actually entering high school at that point of my journey of, of my formative years and having to deal in week one with the realities that people said very disparaging things to me because obviously I had an accent when I spoke English, when I tried, attempted to connect with them in English. And then uh, there were a lot of issues in my school because it was actually the newcomer school where everyone, right, who were recent arrivals into the Cleveland area went there because that's where the bilingual program was at. Hmm. And then they were busing the African-American students, my peers, from the east side of Cleveland to the west side Hmm. where we resided, right, in that school. And so it created a lot of turmoil for many of us because, right, you have now, you've created here an ecosystem where there was no plan on how to, you know, you were educating or, or providing right opportunities to bridge hmm. those lived experiences for us to build trust right with one another. And so here we're throwing all of this kids, right, in, in ninth grade to 12th grade together and say, you know, figure it out. Good luck. And so it really created a lot of sparks, a lot of fights, a lot of right tension along the way. And so that was one of those key things that started influencing and shaping hmm. my perspective. But the other piece that was probably profoundly as important was the lived experience in the community at home and having, for example, to go with with my mom to the local healthcare system hmm. to access care. And back then, as you and I know, there weren't any mandates, federal mandates, where you needed to have medically qualified and trained interpreters, which right full circle now, that department reports into my function. And so I it's it gives me pride and it also reminds me of the accountability and responsibility that I have on our team of being cultural brokers, right? And ensuring that we're providing culturally and linguistically equitable care mm. for not some, but for all of our patients. Yes. And it's about the end of one and it's about every single encounter, not some, but every single encounter counts for us and it matters to our patients. And so 
for me was that piece because I remember my mother having to share some of her most intimate things through me. Hmm. And so, right, the power shifted. Now I'm in the know. I was not equipped to actually interpret for her, yet I am right put in that role. And I know that I was actually failing the clinical team. I was failing my mom and I was embarrassed. And I know my mom more than anyone else was really embarrassed, right? To have to go through that ordeal. Mm. And I and I know it took a lot for her. And so that I remember noting that and saying to myself as a young man, if I could ever prevent someone else from going through that, then I've done right my deed. That would yes. be my legacy. Hmm. And so that I think is what really steered that love for healthcare for coming in and not know so much right on the, on the clinical side. That's actually my younger brother, my youngest brother, he's the physician in the mm, family. Okay. So we have this, you know, conversations about, you know, quality of care, right. And disparities. And he comes always from a very clinical focus approach when I come right for a much more global or comprehensive approach, uh, an inclusive approach around, Hey, you know, here's the totality, right. Of the picture, you're coming through a sliver of that picture, but mm. I appreciate that you know, having those discussions. But that, I think, is what really shaped us in terms of going into the healthcare field, right? Because we wanted to make sure that we would actually prevent others from going through that experience, especially those limited English proficient community members um, in our BIPOC communities. I so appreciate you sharing your why, because our purpose is often what drives us to do the kind of work that we do. And I love that you've even acknowledged that this work you know, you don't necessarily get to turn it off at night. Yeah. We don't have the benefit of no longer being who we identify to be like, yeah, I'll just take off my blackness today. <laughs> right, right. It doesn't happen. And so as you are sharing just how those early influences um, certainly have impacted your professional journey, but also the way that you're engaging in these, they can be highly complicated times. I, I just appreciate that. As you are thinking about the work that you're doing, what counsel might you give to those who are interested in doing this work as well? It's a good question to ask. And as you and I know, as both uh, DEI practitioners and executives, I oftentimes remind a lot of the folks that I'm mentoring because I'm actually right now in the face of my career where I can pay it forward. Yes. And I'm trying right to build the next cadre or leaders uh, that will probably pick up the mantle right and run with it and, and will continue this work forward. You know, I always tell them that, and I understand the struggle, right, of wanting to continue to excel and to be further developed and more importantly, to be promoted. Mm -hmm. But I tell folks, Make sure that you are developing your craft, that you're becoming a well-rounded practitioner and executive, because if you try to cut corners, it's going to show. Mm. You can, you know, that whole fallacy of you can fake it until you make it. Yes, maybe on lower roles you can do that. But when you get to a certain level in the organization, yes, on day one, people are going to be able to pick up on that. And so I, I remind them that, hey, make sure that you do your due diligence that you know you take those stretch assignments right that you're getting mentored that you're getting sponsored that you're getting right those opportunities that are going to afford you the stretch assignments to continue to build your skill sets and capabilities and knowledge base because that's what will ultimately right will get you to be really good at your craft 
And then ultimately, if you are in an organization that really values who you are and the work that you have been performing, over time, you're going to get actually looked at right and tapped on the shoulder and you're going to get promoted. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's going to happen for everyone. And I understand that there's right systemic racism. So I'm not certainly naive enough not to understand that. But I always give them that counsel because mm-hmm. if not, they're not going to be able to get there. Well, you have given us a whole leadership lesson. <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate that. I think the advice and counsel that you shared is not just uh, for those who are interested in the EDI, not the profession, but in this lane of work, but certainly for anyone who is looking to move their leadership to the next level at any level. Thank you. My final question to you is what are you reading now? What's on your reading list? Yes, I have two books here. The first one is called The New DEI and ERG Frontier. Ah. It's actually, the author is a good friend. It's Joseph Santana. Okay. And uh, Joseph has been, uh, was actually probably one of the first, if not the first, Hispanic Latino chief diversity officer globally. And so uh, in the corporate sector. And so Joe is a dear friend. I, I have actually, um, you know, he's, he, he has provided mentorship over the years. Now I'm actually on a round table that he chairs mm. for season CDOs. So he wrote he wrote the book and in his book actually there's a number of nuggets about uh, Kathy and Freighter because hmm. he's a you know he actually was able to interview Kathy and he has been here in Milwaukee several times and then the second one that I will put a plug for is inclusion and purpose it's an intersectional approach to creating a culture of belonging at work and the author is Ruchika. Tulshian is how she pronounces her last name hmm. and a phenomenal book. Uh, I think it's really good around the intersection of the work that we do and understanding ultimately how that uh, provides and becomes ca- a catalyst for, you know, providing the BIPOC staff members in any organization that sense of belonging. So I would highly recommend both books. Excellent. Well, we appreciate those two. I have jotted them down so that they can be a part of my reading list since this is an area that I'm deeply passionate about. I just want to appreciate you. I started this conversation by saying so many conversations that you and I have had um, in the past have has impacted the work that I've been able to do, but also given me a fresh lens on how how you really create uh, sustainable and measurable results within an organization around the critical issues of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so to you, to the world, I am saying I so appreciate you. I appreciate um, you for your incredible passion and dedication to this work and just want to thank you again for joining joining the podcast today, Andreas. Well, thank you so much, Tammy. And back at you, um, I have great admiration for the work that you have continued to be catalytic around and being such a great advocate and ambassador in our community. And certainly I was able to experience that firsthand and partner with you at the rep. And I know that that will be one of your multiple legacy efforts (laughs) that you have left here in Milwaukee. And so for that, I am uh, thankful uh, and appreciative of the partnership. And certainly I think collectively, right, this is what we can do. Thank you. Thank you. And to all of you who have been listening to this conversation, we appreciate you. We ask that you would join us again for our next episode of On the Edge of Equity. Until next time. Thank you for joining us on the Edge of Equity. 
Please join our email list at info at athenacommunicationsllc.com so you don't miss a single episode. The link is also in the show notes. You can also support the show by sharing it on social media with your personal and professional networks, suggesting guests and topics for us to spotlight, and engaging in crucial conversations about systems change.